Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, the show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Henrik, really nice to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited to talk to you. Yeah. Very good. Cool. So what we, how we like to get this podcast started is if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to get a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Uh, yes. Um, my name is Henrik Stiesdale. And uh, I usually say that I'm one of the original wind pioneers in, in Denmark. I built my first turbine in 1976, so a little over 45 years ago, uh, as a very young man, and um, got engaged with building a wind turbine for my parents' farm, and as part of that, got involved with a with a blacksmith, and together we developed a, a so to speak professional wind turbine. My own was built mainly of secondhand equipment from the junkyard and things I did myself. I built the tower myself and I built the blades and so on. But and then I found the gearbox and the generator, etc. at the at the scrap heap uh, uh, or, or at, at the factories that were getting closed or whatever. But we also built together with the blacksmith a couple of turbines with new components. Um, and that turned out to be a big success. And then my friend wanted me to join him in building a true wind company. I didn't feel like that. I, I wanted to go to university and hadn't started yet. So uh, ultimately we ended up selling a license for our technology to the company Bestas, uh, which uh, later became the biggest wind company in the world. Uh, and this is how they got started in, in wind. Uh, that was in 1979. I then uh, worked f- for them part-time uh, as, a, as a consultant until while I was at university until 86, then they got in some trouble over the California market that suddenly collapsed. And I ended oh. up joining another Danish wind company, Bonus, in 1987, where I became the technical manager. And I stayed with that company until 2004, when we sold it to the big German company, Siemens. And then I mm-hmm. stayed on for another 10 years with Siemens until I finally retired at the end of 2014. It was, that was really a spectacular journey. We we were 80 people when I joined Bonus in 1987. We were 801 exactly when we sold the company to Siemens uh, 17 years later. And when I left, we were 14,000. So uh, so that was really sort of exciting. Uh, on that uh, path, I um, I had the good luck to be the responsible for the design of the turbines for the world's first offshore wind farm in 1991 and also for the world's first floating offshore turbine in 2007. Uh, After I retired, I wanted to spend some more time with the family and so on, but I also wanted to do some something more on on climate. And I ended up creating a company that is doing actually four different things. We do floating offshore wind turbines. We do uh, electric energy storage. We do uh, hydrogen and then we do carbon negative fuels. So fuels where you absorb more 
CO2 from the atmosphere when you make the fuel than you emit when you use the fuel. Uh, so that's really super exciting and uh, I'm very busy with that now. No, that and that's a great thing to be busy with and I appreciate everything you've done in your career. It's it's um it's pretty amazing. Have you just always been interested in inventing things? Like what's the first thing you can remember you like created when you were a kid? Yeah, I think I have always been interested um and I guess when I was a boy I built, you know, like children do, I built models of things, I built mechanisms that could do things in my room. Uh I built um, stuff for my camera and, and what have you. So, uh, so I always got a kick out of that. But I don't remember the first thing that I, that I did. Would you like read books or would you just grab like spare parts and just start putting things together? Uh, no, I, I was an avid reader, but I would say that most of the things I did, I did kind of like on my own initiative. And uh, But of course, I got inspiration from reading technical books and and. Uh, seeing how things were, were, were done elsewhere. And then I had the great gift that my father was also uh, technically interested. He was not a, a technical person per se. He was a teacher at a teacher's college, but he, he, um, he had a kind of sort of, um, what should we say, a no nonsense approach to things. So when something turned out to be an issue and should be solved, then it was the attitude was of, okay, let's see, how do we go about this instead of throwing up the hands in horror and saying nobody can right. solve this. So, uh, so I think that was also a great inspiration for me. Is that where your interest in wind kind of came from? You saw this abundant kind of resource that was, well, how did you come up with this idea at all? Uh, no, it was not that way around. Um, <clears throat> We had an energy issue underlying things from from the oil crisis in 1973. We lived in the in the country. We had a farm. It was very old and uh, not well insulated, so we used a lot of oil in the winter for heating, um, and um, and that got to be very expensive after the oil crisis. But I, I you can say that I initially only observed that and took it as one of the things that happened. Then in 1976, when I had done my, my high school, I took a sabbatical. And uh, as part of that, I was um, went on a bicycle trip around England and Wales, um, went over to, to London, bought a bicycle, and then I cycled up to Scotland and on the East Coast and down to on the, along the West Coast and out in Wales and so on. And that was great. But uh, on that trip, I had one day in, in the autumn of 1976 when I was cycling up north in the eastern part of England and passed a big power station. Mm -hmm. And they had cooling towers. In Denmark, uh, power stations don't tend to have cooling towers because we have so easy access to the sea. So you usually use seawater cooling. But in England, uh, in many places, you need a cooling tower system, which has towers that are maybe 40, 50, 60 meters tall and are kind of like um, shaped in a peculiar way where, where water evaporates and, and that cools the system. And normally you see a little bit of vapor or steam coming out of the top of such a tower. But when the meteorological conditions are right, that can develop into a big plume of steam. And on this particular day, which was a nice, crisp, sunny fall day, it, it, the, the cloud 
uh, or the, the steam actually ended up building a cloud. And I was cycling with the wind in the back. So I ended up cycling under that cloud. And I could see out sort of some miles out to each side that it was sunny, but I was in a cold shadow. And I thought, this is not right. This, this cannot be, this is man-made impact that's not good. And when I came back home my, uh, around Christmas, my father, uh, I, I told about this and then he said, oh yeah, well, you know what? There are some people nearby who are building the world's biggest wind turbine. And they were actually, let's go up and have a look. And that was uh, uh, at a um, teacher's college that had a very sort of independent approach to things. And they also had the energy cost problem. And they basically said, okay, hmm, we have a, an issue. Let's solve it. Let's buy a big wind turbine. Oh, oh, then there's nothing to be bought because it wasn't at that time. Let's build one. Right. Uh, and then we went up and looked at that. And that was super um, inspiring uh, because they were young people like me doing stuff nobody had done before. And, and, and there was this sort of, it, it's totally embarrassing to say now because I was wrong, but, but uh, there was this episode where there was a young guy welding. He was standing with the back to me and he was in a boiler suit and he was welding and it, it looked okay. And, and then he turned around and there was a girl. <laughs> and then I thought, and I, 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 you know, it was different times. I thought if yeah. she can do it, I can do it. So then I went home and we got hold of a welding machine and I learned to weld. And then I got started on my own turbine with this inspiration and, and sort of one more kick in the direction of this, just go ahead and do it. Yeah. And it sounds like you just have this inclination to just create things and build things and learn the skills you need to create something new, which I think is really cool. I'm, I'm curious how you felt watching this wind power industry just explode over the decades that you've been, been involved with it. And I'm thinking about where, where do you see this going? I know a lot of people want wind to be largely adopted. I'm wondering what your personal thoughts are on this, having yeah. you know, seen it evolve from a seed, yeah. you know? It's clear that when you, when you look back, you see this tremendous development. When you are in the middle of it, you don't see it as clearly. And of course, there were times when you said, wow, now there's actually somebody requesting um, that size of project. Well, we never did that before. Now it's 10 megawatts. Wow. Now it's 20. Wow. And so on. But most of it, of course, was an, 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 an everyday thing. Um, and gradually, it dawned on me how big it had become. Actually, I will say that the biggest realization in a way came when other people started talking about it mm -hmm. from the late 80s and onwards for the next maybe 10 years. There was a, it was kind of like a pet field in economics and sociology and so on at universities in Denmark. What, what just happened there? How did they manage to build up a new industry? And then I, got, I was interviewed because I had been in from the beginning. And when you were interviewed, you kind of say, oh, yeah, that's right. It is actually quite interesting. Um, my own feelings about it changed uh, over time. When I, when I started, um, it was all about this uh, uh, almost personal problem, even though it was my parents' farm and I was a young man. Of course, I was going to move away and so on. That, but that we had a cost issue and I could solve it. So it was all about very personal, let's get independent on the farm. And then uh, once I got involved with the pioneering environment, 
got to be more say, hey, we could actually maybe do something on a bigger scale. Let's have as a target that one day, sometime out far in the future, we might supply 10% of the electricity need in Denmark. Now wind power is way beyond, we are way beyond half of all electricity in Denmark that comes wow. from wind. Now, uh, later on, when I got involved in the commercial companies, first Vestas and then later Bonus, and particularly when I become a, became a manager, it changed again in that what had been, so to speak, product or topic oriented became more a matter about people. That it was about when you are a manager, it's very much about keeping people's jobs. You are responsible that their families have a, 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 a good income and that you take care of them and so on. So therefore it kind of changed to being something about running a company and being feeling responsible for the people. And that never leaves you uh, also not later on, but later on from about 1989 or so 88, maybe the issue of global warming, as it was called at the time nowadays, climate change gradually crept in. I actually first learned about it from an American newsletter on wind that was issued uh, in the late 80s, early early 90s. Um, And then gradually, I realized, hey, this is actually serious. This is something of a, on a global scale. This is not about keeping people employed. This is about doing something about it. And um, I actually had some, 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 uh, what should we say, not so nice moments on the way because around 1996, 97 or so, the company bonus that I worked for had grown to a size where I no longer knew everybody. Right. I used to know everybody. Now I know it. And, and I, we had in particular, in Denmark, you have, very, you have a tradition for a big Christmas party in a company before you go off for Christmas vacation. That's how it has always been. And we had great Christmas parties and we were then seated by a lottery. So you would simply draw a number and then you go and sit with the people around you. And in 97, for the first time I sat, at a table with only people I didn't know. Hmm. And then I realized, okay, the family feeling has gone. Is that good or bad? And then uh, it felt bad. I loved uh, being familiar with people. And I ended up thinking this is good because it's an, a sign how we are growing and how we have, have come to matter. That's um, interesting. So, so, uh, so on the way it has changed, um, when it comes to the other part of your question about uh, how much wind power it's clear that um, when I was when I was in 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 very much engaged as the manager or co-manager of a company I was a lot focused on how we were doing how how many turbines we could sell that we had growth etc nowadays of course it's much more about what can the industry do and this sort of spraying it out is also about solar that I'm no longer so much. It needs to be wind. No, the, the real thing is it needs to be renewables. It's no, it needs to be non-fossil. Um, and there, of course, my, my, my own field is wind power. And I would really see that becoming very big. I do recognize, though, that in a small country like Denmark, we do have spatial constraints that we do install big industrial machines out in the landscape. And there are some people for whom that, that is a loss that you have these machines in the landscape. 
And therefore, that's why I have focused uh, in the last many years mainly on offshore, because there you can get it out of sight. So you can yeah. make what, what I call invisible power. If you are 25 miles out at sea, you can't see the turbines from the beach. You just get the power and they are out and, of sight. And, can you and, 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 and that is why I, I'm focusing a lot on that. Can you tell me a bit about some of the opportunities that are opened up by the newer technology, specifically like the floating wind farms? Because those are all offshore as well. Yes. Um, yes. Um, offshore wind is a big success. Um, we are. Uh, we have recently had for the first time in Denmark, they've had it for a couple of years in Germany and the Netherlands, but for the latest wind farm that was auctioned out here in Denmark, uh, came in at um, zero subsidy. In other words, society doesn't pay anything for getting this energy. On the contrary, the, the Danish society will earn a quite sizable chunk of money for the, for, for the lease from the lease rights. So it has become not how can we afford it, but how can we afford not to. And that's of course super, but it has a big drawback. Not, it's not a drawback, but it has the, the reservation, you can say, that our successes are in parts of the world that are not really that common. So they are in the North Sea at the northwestern part of Europe. They are in the Baltic in the Eastern Europe. They are on the East Coast of the US. They are off the coast of China. That's where the big markets are. And they're all characterized by having relatively shallow water close to big population centers typically less than 50 meters water depth. And at those depths, you can install bottom fixed foundations. So wind turbines that stand on the seabed. But most of the world is not like that. So these are actually not normal places. Most of the world is normal. And that means that there's deep water close to the big population centers. And then you can't do bottom fixed offshore wind. And the International Energy Agency have calculated that um, while conventional offshore wind standing on the seabed can deliver, roughly speaking, as much electricity as the world is using now. If you introduce floating, the resource is multiplied by a factor of 10. How is it different? It's different in the sense that the floating turbines can go to water depths up to miles. Wow. So 50 meters is like, a you know, 150 feet or whatever, something on that order. Uh, an offshore wind turbine easily goes to 3000 feet if it is floating. Then you have anchors that fix it in so it doesn't drift away, but it floats on the on the waves and it moves also with the waves. Not a lot, but it moves. Um, and that means that we expand the resource tremendously. And then, of course, you could ask, why would you want to do that if with the bottom fix you can do roughly speaking, the electricity that the world is using, why would you want more? And there are two reasons for that. One is that it's not evenly distributed. The California does not benefit much from Europe having a, a surplus of electricity. Sure. And secondly, we actually need much more than what we use now because we have to build uh, um, uh, new fuels that are not based on oil products, but are based on electricity. And for that, we need much more electricity than we use now. And that's why we need floating. That makes sense. Um, how's everything going with the Tetra Spar project as of now? Yeah, 
So, so what we are doing is that we are trying to make low cost floating. Floating, unfortunately, tends to be expensive. And when you when you kind of dig into that and say, why is that? Why does it have to be expensive? That's because the most of it, so this offshore turbine is built in an industrial manner. That's a whole wind turbine. That's a highly industrialized product. But people tend to place those highly industrialized products on very non-industrialized uh, floating foundations that are built in shipyards or essentially welded by hand. So, wow. so a typical figure is that an offshore wind turbine that is, let's say, 120 meters tall up to the machinery at the top of the tower. A tower for that would take two, three thousand working hours. But a floating foundation sometimes takes two, three hundred thousand working hours. In other words, a hundred times more than the tower. And it weighs maybe two or three times the tower, but it doesn't weigh a hundred times the tower. Why should it then take a hundred times more labor to build it? And there you could say, well, we don't mind because we like our people to be have jobs, but there are not enough welders in the world to do anything like what we need. So what we have done in, in my little company is that we have developed a floating foundation, the Tetra Spa that you mentioned, which is based on industrial manufacturing and therefore does not take two or three hundred thousand working hours. It doesn't take as little as the tower, but it takes maybe 15,000 working hours instead of the two, three hundred thousand. And that's wow. the whole trick of what we are doing. And that's actually doing well. We have done it in a tower factory in Denmark, built all the components, taken them up to a, a port in Denmark, assembled the foundation, uh, launched it, put on the turbine, shipped it up to Norway, the 350 nautical miles. And mm -hmm. then now it's uh, operating off the west coast of Norway in pretty tough conditions. Uh, today, the waves are, I just checked, are about eight meters tall. So the waves are 25 feet. Um, so that's sort of sub, uh, substantial. It's a big uh, wave. Offshore situation. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And I think a lot of the proponents of wind power are specifically interested in getting our greenhouse gases down. I think a lot of people in the renewable energy space are very focused on the climate. And there's kind of another piece to environmental stewardship beyond just CO2 levels in the atmosphere. And then this is kind of a tough question for you. This is the idea of waste. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not sure a lot of people realize, but these um, blades on the the uh, turbines for that power the wind turbines um they retire after 25 to 30 years and there's these giant industrial pieces that are being buried into the ground so i was wondering if you had any ideas on how to like get around this issue of just generating more waste while generating uh cleaner energy yeah yeah that's of course bad we should always try to to avoid doing that, uh, it's part of one of the many. So, of, it's part of a package of many questions that we have been asked over the years about the products, and most of those are easy to answer. This one is not so easy to answer. Those sure. that are easy to answer is, for instance, ah, but do you actually generate enough energy with the wind turbine to regenerate the energy that went into making the steel and making the fiberglass and so on? Yes, we do. And modern wind turbine regenerates in three to six months, the energy that went into building it. And then the sure. next 25 years, there's a surplus and so on. They are easy to answer. This one here is not so easy, but there is an answer. <clears throat> and, 
and it's actually not very complicated. And there are many, many complicated solutions out there, but I think you should regard it in a simplistic manner. What you have is a big structure that is made out of glass, and that is the glass is kept together with a plastic. And that's typically it had only two types of plastic. One is called polyester, and the other one is called epoxy. And it's either polyester or epoxy. What you can do is that you can shred the blade so that it gets to into small, manageable pieces. And then you can put it into a pyrolysis oven where it is heated to a high temperature, 700-800 degrees. At that temperature, without oxygen being present. If there was oxygen, the uh, plastic would burn, but there is no oxygen. So what happens is that the plastic essentially goes away as a <clears throat> as a gas, and what is left is the naked glass, so to speak. And you can then use the gas to drive a power system or whatever, hmm. and you can use the glass as an insulation uh, uh, material for houses or for buildings or for whatever. That is a very easy way to go about it. And that is, in my opinion, the way to go. Many people would like to recycle it more, but 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 the real thing is that the glass cannot be reused because the, it has, has had damage from being used. So it can be reused for insulation. And the, and the uh, material uh, in the plastic is only important because it has carbon in it. And right. you can then use that where you need carbon for combustion or to create new fuels or to create new plastics or whatever. So I don't think this is rocket science. And this is what I no. think should be done. Well, thank you for sharing. I really appreciate your opinion on that one. That's a, a question I was definitely wondering after learning mm. about wind power. Um, I, before we sign off, I'd love to hear a bit about the Sky Clean project that you're working on and the idea of negative uh, negative emission fuels, I think is what you call yes. it. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> That's actually also about waste. Of course. Uh, it's not it's not wind turbine waste, but it's waste out in society, mainly in agriculture, in forestry, could also be household. Um, the thing is that um, forestry and agriculture and food, all types of food, um, essentially start with plants. Even seafood starts with plants in the sea. Sure. And, and plants are about 50% carbon. So plant material, uh, cellulose or leak line, arch or whatever is in, in a plant, is a lot carbon. And then there's some oxygen and some nitrogen and so on. But half of it is carbon. And all of that carbon has been taken from the atmosphere by the plant through photosynthesis, as we call it. So what a plant does is that it takes in CO2 from the air, and then it clips it uh, so that it keeps the C and kicks out the O2. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason you and I can sit here and talk and breathe is that plants did that for a billion years. Sure. Um, uh, and when that means that when we eat food or when animals, uh, when animals eat plant material, uh, all the carbon that's in there came from the atmosphere. What normally happens with plant waste, like straw, um, residues from corn production, 
uh, manure from animals and so on, is that it is uh, mulched, it's plowed into the ground. It might be burned, but it could also be plowed into the ground. When it, when it gets into the ground, it's eaten by microorganisms. And when they uh, have their metabolism, when they grow and expand and exist, they emit all the carbon as CO2. Just like I do, if I, if I don't put on weight, that can be a little bit of a challenge, but if I don't put on weight, <laughs> then all the carbon in all the food I eat comes out ultimately as CO2, either because I breathe it out or because whatever residues I leave in the toilet ultimately gets broken down and all the carbon gets to go back as CO2. That's a nat natural cycle. So plants get it from the air. At some point it is broken down. It gets to be CO2, goes back to the air again. So it's a full cycle. That cycle we break down with our new technology. And it's actually, it's very much not rocket science. But we do a bit like what, we, what, what, what I, I spoke about with the, with the, um, with the uh, fiberglass blades. We put the plant waste into a pyrolysis oven and heat it. And here we don't heat it that much. We heat it to about 600 degrees. Now my clock will be saying a little sound for a little while. I'll just pause while that is, while that is over, until that is over. Sure, man. Um, so the attentive listener will know that it's now six o'clock here in Denmark. Indeed. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so, but when we heat it up to 600 degrees, in a pyrolysis oven, we do the same as with the fiberglass. We make sure there's no oxygen. If there was oxygen, the straw or the rest of the corn or whatever would burn, but there is no oxygen, so it cannot burn. So what happens is about half of the waste becomes a gas. Mm -hmm. And that gas can be used for fuels. The other half doesn't want to become a gas. It just becomes a black, some black stuff that's left in the oven. Is it biochar? Yeah, it's biochar. If it is wood that we use, it becomes charcoal that could be used in, on, on your barbecue. But if it's straw, it becomes essentially straw barbecue, uh, straw uh, charcoal. And that is a, a dusty material. So what we do is that we pelletize that before we make it into little sort of pea-sized yep. pellets before we feed it in. And the trick is, that biochar does not get eaten by any of the micro microorganisms in the, in the ground. That's why we can find coal fields that are hundreds of millions years old. We don't find meat fields from dead animals or wood fields from dead trees or anything. It is only preserved if it becomes black carbon because there's no bacterium that eats black carbon. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole trick that Half of the waste becomes fuel, half of it just becomes biochar or charcoal. And the biochar is permanent out in nature, so we can spread it out on agricultural land. Fertilize. And all the nutrients that were in the feedstock, they get out with the biochar and are leached out of the char when it rains, so it acts like a fertilizer. But the carbon part is permanent. And that means that, of course, the half that we made into fuel becomes CO2 when we burn it in a jet engine or whatever. But the half that became biochar is 
taken away from the circulation. So we want to run our cycle one time more. We need some more CO2 from the air. We, we do leave some from our fuel, but we need more to do the cycle once more. So then we get this paradox that sounds strange, but it is true that the more fuel we produce, the less CO2 in the atmosphere. Right. And that's so really, it... that's really a, a, a smart way to solve a fuel issues where you cannot use uh, non-carbon fuels. Right. In, in ships or in trucks, you can use non-carbon fuels such as hydrogen or ammonia. But in air, airplanes, you need carbon fuels because airplanes uh, are, so to speak, dimensioned by the fuel weight. And if we have a heavy fuel like a hydrogen, a hydrogen is heavy even though it's a lightweight gas because it needs very strong containers to keep the pressurized gas in the plane. Ammonia is heavy. If you want to fly across the Atlantic, forget about hydrogen or ammonia, you need to use a carbon fuel. And that's what my technology can do, that it can deliver those carbon fuels. There is enough agricultural waste in the, in the world to feed all the aircraft many times over in, in the world. So we have room for growth in aviation if you want that, if we get this technology up and running. Is this the same as biofuel? Um, no, uh, yes and no. Biofuel is also fuel that's made out of old cooking oil. It's okay. fuel that's made out of, um, uh, 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 shall we say, uh, uh, CO2 that you capture from, from biogas. And you can sometimes make fuels out of that and so on. So this is a, this goes under the overall heading of biofuel, but bio, there are many other biofuels than the fuels we make here. And this right. has the particular characteristic that it is carbon negative. The more fuel we make, the less CO2 in the atmosphere, even I when think, we take into account the CO2 emitted by the fuel. Yes, I think I'm understanding it. So you're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere by the plant photosynthesizing. You're taking the plant and putting it into a kiln and producing a carbon gas and a carbon product like biochar. You're returning the the physical product to the earth and then you're using the gas to create fuel so half of it is being sequestered am i understanding that correctly it's spot on cool well henrik it's been great having you on the show i really appreciate you taking some time to come on and share your thoughts yeah. my yeah. last question i, I love yeah. to ask yeah no it's been a pleasure man i'm really i'm really grateful for all the work you've done and mm -hmm. I'm, i think you're going to see your work continue to grow and expand um i always love to ask people at the end what advice they have for young people who are passionate about creating a better world and any thoughts you have about accelerating the implementation of either you know neg negative uh carbon negative technology or renewable energies that's actually a super good question i i, I take part in stuff like um, uh, wind kits, you know, things where you, uh, children who are interested in, in wind turbines uh, can get some interaction and, and so on. Um, but that of course is of course more a, a children's thing. I think that the, the main thing, uh, uh, many, many young people have other interests than climate and energy and so on, and they should pursue their interests. That's obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, but those who are interested, I hope will, 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 my best advice is, of course, to get a proper education that you get either a practical sort of uh, 
uh, learn a skill or that you take a, a more academic pathway and, and, and learn it. And that you then keep a, um, uh, it, it, it sounds completely trivial and, 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 and stupid, but it, I, I think it's true that you keep, uh, keep being um, curious and that you try to learn a, a, an approach where, yes, I hear what the uh, old people say, but nobody says that they are right all the time. That there are alternative ways to approach things and that you, um, that you kind of pursue that uh, to the extent that you, that you can, whether you do that as a, as a, as a hands-on person or as a member of a bigger company staff or as an academic person, that you keep on this sort of, yeah, I know what they say, but, but couldn't you do it in a different way? And if mm -hmm. you take one of the things I work with, you know, um, a, a very typical counter argument about renewables is, yeah, yeah, but what do we do when there's no sun? What do we do when there's no wind? Well, then we create energy storage. Yeah, yeah, people have tried that for ages. I don't care if they have tried. We still create it. We still do what we what we uh, um, what we uh, what we dream of. What we dream of, and 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 I get. We are about a hundred people in my company, and I um, I get to speak with everybody. I I like to know people, and I ask them also, you know, questions like, "Why are you here?" And uh, there was a young uh, uh, woman recently who said, I'm here to save the world. That's a good heavy statement. That's a good, that's a good statement that we like you when you get here with that approach. And some people could laugh and say, I mean, how can you as a grown up say child stuff like that? But that is really, you know, she has a mission, like I have a mission. And, uh, and I think young people should get this, uh, retain this feeling that it's not childish or bad to have a mission. It's a good thing to have a mission. It's a good thing to want to change things. And when we started as pioneers back in the 70s, there was no recipe. There was no cookbook. Nobody had done it before. And it still worked out because we got together. We, we were kind of unimpressed with, you know, and, and, and when I started the power utilities here, and then I said, it will never work. It'll never deliver anything that matters. We don't care what you say. It will never work. And we just said, okay, fair enough. You, you keep your opinions. We'll make it work. So sometimes I, I use this term where I say the people saying that it can't be done shouldn't stand in the way of the people doing it. And, um, and I think that for young people, they should have this, uh, I hear what you say, but I still want to change things attitude. That will make a big difference. Yeah. AKA, as we say in America, ignore the haters. And, yes, uh, that's, a good, that's a good statement. Yeah, Henrik, you're you're a true legend in the space. Thank you so much for all the work you've done over the years for caring about my generation and future generations, continuing to invent things, spending your time well, having a mission. And I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me today. It yeah. meant the world to me. Thanks a lot. Thank you. It was a big pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're, wel you're welcome. All right, everybody.
So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.